Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest to interview, Dr. Stephen D. Bloom. As well as being a big fan of Lost in Space and science fiction in general, Dr. Bloom is the author of a fascinating book titled The Physics and Astronomy of Science Fiction. Published in 2016 by McFarland, the book explores a wide range of sci-fi movies, TV series, books, and short stories by exploring their underlying concepts of physics and astronomy. Written for those of us who are not real rocket scientists, Steve's entertaining and highly readable book assesses the accuracy and plausibility of many of the complex concepts that often appear in science fiction, such as interstellar flight, time travel, teleportation, robots, alien life, as well as other genre fixtures. Before we speak with him, a little background info on Dr. Bloom. Growing up in the New York City suburbs in the early 1970s, Steve, like many of us, would rush home from his neighborhood school to watch reruns of Lost in Space. There began his love for science and astronomy in particular. Later, he would go on to major in astrophysics at Columbia University and then earned his PhD in astronomy from Boston University in 1994. After that, he continued doing research as a postdoctoral fellow at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center located outside Washington, D.C. in Greenbelt, Maryland, and then at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. These days, Dr. Bloom is a professor of physics and astronomy at Hampton Sydney College, located near Farmville, Virginia, where he lives with his wife, daughter, and cat. As I mentioned last time, when we got together to record, Steve was very generous with his time, which is why I decided to split our conversation into two special Calling Alpha Control interviews. Today we'll pick up the discussion where we left off last time, talking about Lost in Space and Steve's wonderfully informative book on the science of science fiction. I think you'll be both delighted and amazed by some of what you learn in this interview. So sit back, relax, and enjoy part two of this intriguing conversation with Dr. Stephen D. Bloom. 
Well, let's move on. Let's talk about chapter five. And that one is uh, all about time travel. It's all about time. So let's start off with a pop quiz, another multiple choice question for you, Professor. Okay. In the Star Trek original series episode, Assignment Earth, the USS Enterprise uses a novel means for traveling back in time from the 23rd to the 20th century to conduct historical research. What device or method was used for time travel? Was it A, the Corbinite Maneuver? Was it B, the Interocitor? Was it C, the Light Speed Breakaway Factor? Or D, the Flux Capacitor? I think it's C. You would be correct. And you might be noticing a trend here just to... For all you SAT, uh. <laughs> oh, right. yeah, right. The light the correct speed answer, I think, has been seen a few times. It has been seen a few times, <laughs> but don't count on that, sir. I'm warning you. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm lulling you into a false sense of complacency. Uh, not really, but anyway, yeah, the light speed breakaway factor, which they uh, famously don't explain what that means. But right. does that mean anything to you? I think it's a bit of techno babble, unless I'm mistaken. It might have some meaning. I mean, one thing that some people have discussed for potentially going back in time is to use strong gravity, uh, particularly uh, wormholes or maybe black holes. And, mm -hmm. and the same thing would happen to a lesser extent with a star like the sun, even though it's not a very massive star, that if you go around a very massive object at very high speeds, that could start affecting the passage of time. Right. Uh, so people have discussed that kind of thing. And that's probably what they're getting at. Right. The, yeah, obviously with a dash of technobabble. But, sure. But yeah, they're thinking about a real concept that scientists have talked about and then kind of adjusting it for the script. Yeah, ironically, time dilation or just the fact that, you know, from relativity, if you're going close to the speed of light – how's the best way to explain this? The time you experience is much less than the time for those who aren't traveling that fast. That's the whole relativity thing. So right. it's almost as if, you know, it'd be easier to quote unquote, go into the future uh, by going near the speed of light than it would be to go in the past. I hadn't thought about that until. That's the, absolutely uh, true. Although you're going to a future that doesn't have you in it. Right. Yeah. You're kind of traveling into the future with you missing, although you're there once your ship makes it there. Correct. Or whatever you're using to advance the time. Well, again, you don't need it, but here's an extra credit question for you. But oh, anyway, good. Yeah, yeah. Here we go. Can you name another Star Trek original series episode that deals with time travel, which many consider to be the best episode of that series? Well, I can think of other ones that deal with time travel, but if if you're going with ones that people think is probably the best episode, I'll go with City on the Edge of Forever. Ah, you got it. That's right. Is that your favorite episode of the, the original series? Ah, uh, maybe second. I think I like Menagerie a bit better, but... Ah, uh, uh, yeah, the Menagerie's good. Only two-parter, right? In the uh, Yep. Yeah. yeah, no, that one is cool. You know, I do like City on the Edge of Forever, but I don't think it would be my favorite episode either. And I'm hard-pressed to decide which one is my favorite uh, one. You know, there's some I can definitely list that are not particularly favorites of mine, although they're all eminently watchable, I think. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, okay, time travel, we already started getting into it, but you know, one of the parts of this chapter that I thought was particularly interesting was just the whole discussion of what is time in sort of a yeah. philosophical versus a physical discussion, isn't it? Yeah, because it's difficult to define time in terms of anything else, because uh, what you do is you start analogizing and start saying things like, time is like a flowing river, but something that's flowing is moving in time. Right. So that's maybe not the greatest description. Uh, and then also, uh, there's an ongoing philosophical discussion as like among actual philosophers about whether time is really just a construct in our mind anyway, or whether there's any kind of reality to it. Mm-hmm. Now, a physicist will definitely say there's reality to it. Sure. And on the practical side, in terms of measurements, what time is is a way to describe an evolving system. So if you have something like a totally empty universe with nothing happening, then time really has no meaning because nothing's happening, nothing's evolving. Uh, you just have a completely empty universe. So 20 billion years could have passed by and you would have no way of really knowing that because nothing's happening. But in a universe that's expanding or a universe where things are changing form, then time is how you're kind of keeping track of of how those things uh, occur one before the other, one sure. after the other. Uh, that's kind of a practical use of time. But also, it has a reality beyond just being a descriptor like that. In general relativity, uh, time is actually a dimension just like the three spatial dimensions. Right. So you actually have to take that into account in terms of your calculations of how something is going to bend light, like a, how a black hole is going to bend light. Uh, you have to take into account time. So it's really something real there. So uh, I would have to say that although it's an interesting philosophical discussion to think about it as just really a construct in our mind, when we start thinking about it physically, it's it's a real thing, even though it's hard. And it was hard for me just now. And it's hard for most people to really define time. Yeah. Uh, you can describe how you use it and how it's important but then defining it in terms of their words, like a formal definition, is very difficult. It is difficult. You'll hear people say, well, we're all time travelers because we're all traveling into the future. But the problem is we only get to experience the present. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, That's our reality. But another fun phrase that you had that stuck with me, and I can't remember which chapter it came from, was that the universe is math or something to that effect. And, oh, yes, yes. It's and, probably the chapter on universes. It probably is. The universe is math, and that's very important, just like you're talking about. In physics, time is a dimension that you have to take into account. So if you think of the universe as, <laughs> as best explained by all those math equations that we're not going to talk about in detail, right. you know, that's how to get your head around it, I suppose. But since we're talking about time travel per se in this chapter, mm-hmm. one of the fun things that you bring up are the paradoxes involved with time travel. And of course, this is kind of getting back a little bit into the realm of the philosophical, but talk about those just briefly. What are we talking about with paradoxes? Well, one classic one is the grandfather paradox. Now, yes. uh, the usual way it goes is you go back in time and kill your grandfather. It could actually be any direct ancestor that leads to your existence. doesn't have to be grandfather, but people usually say grandfather. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But the problem with that is then how do you exist in order to go back in time? If you actually went back in time and killed your grandfather, then who creates 
your parents and how do you exist? So that that's a real paradox. Sure. <laughs> In fact, it's a violation of logic that leads a lot of physicists to think, well, maybe you can't really travel back in time if it leads to clear violations of logic like that. Yeah. Or some physicists will not go that far. They'll say, potentially, you could travel back in time, but you're very limited in terms of what you can actually do. Like, you can't really be a part of anything that would change the past. Anything you do is actually going to be a part of the past that already existed. And that if you had infinite knowledge of the past, like if you were able to somehow dig up documents that showed everything that happened in the past, it would reveal that there was this strange traveler who just appeared one day, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's you going back in time. Right. Uh, but you weren't able to do anything to actually change anything. Sure. That seems kind of weird, though. <laughs> that you could, it does seem weird. You know, you could go back in time, but you couldn't actually affect the timeline, right. if you will. Hmm. Yes. It's hard to get my mind around that. But, of course, again, when you talk about the nitty-gritty of how time travel would be actually possible, you run into not just paradoxes, but just, again, the, the idea of how much energy it would take and how would you actually yeah. do these things. But one of the parts I hadn't really thought about before that you bring up is the whole concept of communicating with the past, and there was some sort of uh, quantum... Explain that to me. I'm going to say the wrong thing, but how... And they've done some experiments or something, right? Uh, Well, there's been some um, search for these types of particles. Now, communicating into the past might be possible if some particles can go faster than light. Uh Uh, So far, there hasn't been any such thing ever detected, but a physicist, um, Gerald Feinberg, who's now gone. He he died a few years ago, but he um, actually proposed the idea of tachyons. Right. Uh, I think Star Trek might have played around with the idea of tachyons. (laughs) But the idea is uh, if these particles exist, they could possibly go faster than light. And one of the weird things about something that could go faster than light is that it could actually potentially go back in time. Mm. Uh, So uh, what you can do is possibly send messages into the past by just sending pulses of tachyons or something like that. Uh, You might even be able to uh, do something similar to a time machine that way, because what you could do potentially is send messages that include exact instructions on how to teleport you into the past and then Ah. create a copy of yourself. We haven't talked about teleportation yet, but one thing you could possibly do is have some sort of way of kind of... uh, sending the information about your existence into the past and having them create a duplicate. Now, the problem with that is they would have to have that technology in the past right? or they couldn't possibly put you together <laughs> uh, or at least have modern technology to follow your instructions. Like, I don't think you'd be able to do this uh, to go back to the dinosaurs or something like that. But, sure. but if in the year 3500, you want to go back to the year 2500, maybe you'd be able to do it that way. Uh, so it's, it's just a kind of fun idea. I mean, physicists did talk about it for a few years, and there were some searches for that kind of particle, but nobody's ever found anything. So I think some physicists have kind of given up on the idea of that existing, except for when they want to write a, a sci-fi story. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's some of the most interesting science fiction stories or movies, or, you know, it seems like most of the science fiction TV series at one point or other will deal with the issue of time travel. And it's always fun when they do that. I think it's kind of like the multi-universe thing. It It's great fodder for, you know, thinking outside the box. So, mm-hmm. but, you know, now that you mention it, if you could communicate with the past, that still would potentially bring up that whole 
time paradox problem, wouldn't it? I mean, you could... It would, because if you communicate, you could possibly tell them, you know, don't get aboard that airplane that's going to crash. And, uh, you know, exactly. Or, you know, don't let Hitler survive, you know, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That, that kind of thing. Interesting. But maybe it's the same sort of thing where it's all wrapped up into the past anyway. You think you're an independent player changing the past, but you're actually... We're always kind of part of the flow of events. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that it's hard to kind of wrap our brains yes. around that kind of thing, but maybe that's what's going on, if such a thing could even exist. Right, right, cool. Well, let's talk about Chapter 6, and that covers computers, robots, androids, and cyborgs. So, ah, yeah. Uh, this was a fun one as well. So your your pop quiz for this one is another fill-in-the-blank one. And this one, you had me last time. I'm not sure. This one might be a toughie, too. So we'll we'll see where we go. Okay. This 1970 movie starring Eric Braden, Susan Clark, and William Shallert featured not one, but two giant nuclear defense supercomputers, one American and one Soviet, that merged and took over control of the world. Can you name the title of that film? Wow, I, I cannot name that film. Mm, okay. Although I'm, I'm, it's a, yet another thing with William Shallard. I think for a while he was in absolutely everything. But, he definitely but, was. He definitely but was. But I cannot think of the movie. I, I don't. I can't even think of the movie itself. Okay. I can't even uh, remember watching that movie. All right. Well, it is kind of a, an obscure film, but it's actually a pretty good one. The only reason I brought it up, I actually watched it the other night, and it was called. Oh. Yeah, it was called Colossus, the Forbin Project. Does it ring a bell now, just the title even? It does. I think I've heard of it, but I I had never seen it. Okay. Well, it's funny you mentioned William Shallert, because that's going to be your extra credit. You can... uh, you can still oh. get, you can still get it. Well, you already got you'll get a hundred anyway with all the extra credit you've got. <laughs> but uh, uh-huh. okay, so here's your extra credit question: William Shallert played Federation Undersecretary in charge of agricultural affairs, Niles Barris, in yes. an in an iconic Star Trek original series episode. Can you name the title of that episode? I can. It's trouble with troubles. <laughs> Yeah, trouble there you with go. Tribbles, Trouble with the Tribble, I forget. The Trouble with Tribbles. I, I give the you, Tribble with Tribbles. Yeah. Close enough, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned that he's... <laughs> now, I'm going to admit something that's really funny. that We just watched on the Disney Channel last night, uh, The World's Strongest Man with Kurt Russell, that Disney movie <laughs> from around that same time. And William, uh-huh. William Shallard is in that, playing a, like the uh-huh. chemistry professor, which is kind of fun. Yeah. So he's just about everything. It's funny. Yeah. So computers, robots, androids, and cyborgs. Uh, what's the big thing we should take away from this chapter? Okay. Uh, one thing is understand kind of the limitations of modern-day computation, and uh-huh. but also that we're in some sense already, maybe kind of where the future might go with it, because we already have robots kind of going around. Now, it might be a little bit more simplistic than, you know, B9 or or Data or something like that, Uh Uh, but you start with robotic vacuum cleaners, and then you go on to uh, something more human-looking. So it's a step-by-step process, but in, in some sense, we're already there. That's true. And, and even if some companies, I think in Japan, have come up with almost androidish kind of robots. Yeah, they love their robots over in Japan, and they've come up with some <laughs> very, very cool ones. But uh, they've still got a ways to go before they get to B9 or <laughs> Data, like you yeah, say. Yeah, but yeah, well, the things I thought was interesting, you talk about the future of computing, because, you know, the 
the law of computing, what is that, Moore's law for a long time about right. the advance of computing power and you know everything gets smaller and smaller. I mean, it's amazing how many sci-fi tropes, if you think about it, have become reality today because so many people have cell phones, right? And the computing power in your iPhone is just incredible compared to the, the largest supercomputer that they might have had back in the 1960s. So, And that, yeah. that's kind of the end result of Moore's law, but we're kind of coming up to a limit. Why is that? Well, there's only so much you could crowd into a little space inside of a phone or onto a circuit. So eventually, uh, it's going to get so crowded there that the thing would literally melt at a certain point. Mm. Uh, the amount of energy that these circuits would be, uh, there's only so many that you could put in that space without it uh, kind of overwhelming the circuits. So there's kind of a physical limitation there. Uh, also, uh, you start having um, so-called quantum effects where there's leakage of current from one circuit into another and when things are scrunched into such a very small space. Yeah. So is that it? Or is there possibly something on the horizon that might uh, be the next phase? Well, one way out of it might be quantum computing. Uh, And without getting into all the details, what you might be able to do is actually use the states of atoms to kind of represent calculations and operations the way that you would do with circuits now, you could actually use the uh, what we call the state of an atom, like say the energy that it's in or the momentum that it's in, to actually keep track of certain calculations. The reason why that's very promising is because you have so many atoms right. in the world that if you could use the states of those atoms to keep track of certain calculations, then you have so much more kind of space available to you to do those calculations or to store memory or anything like that. Wow. The reason why it may not be quite as promising for the near future is that it's very difficult to do it. Right. Because what you have to do in order to keep track of all those individual states and, and what they're actually representing is you have to keep the atoms very, very cold, uh, near to absolute zero. And to do that, you need a very bulky structure a very expensive structure. Sure. So uh, in order to scale that down to something like a cell phone, I don't see how you do that. Yeah. Um, but it might be the, exactly the sort of thing that you mentioned where in the 1930s and 40s, when people were first starting to think of computers, uh, they were the size of rooms because people were thinking of how to do that with tubes, you know, with vacuum tubes, but then started thinking about transistors and ICs and mm-hmm. things like that. So Maybe there's something in our past that allows for that scalability. I don't see it now, but neither did people 70 years ago. Yeah. So uh, first you have to take the step of making it work. And people have shown, I should say, that there are scientists who have shown that quantum computing does work. So there have been some successful calculations. Interesting. Most of them have been fairly simple, but they get more complex all the time. So people have been doing more and more complicated calculations using quantum computing. But in order to get into uh, very complex calculations all the time and have it accessible to everybody, that would be very far in the future. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. And I don't know if quantum computing per se has has ever been featured in a science fiction TV show or movie or whatever. I don't recall it if it has, but uh, maybe we'll see something like that, you know, going forward. I, it might be just applied by the fact that, you know, they have the capability on the Starship Enterprise of Next Generation to do some of the things like teleport, which is our next... Uh, <laughs> and when you think about yeah. what would be required to 
to actually do that, I mean, it seems like you'd need something on that level. Uh, you would. You would. You probably would not be able to use the current computer technology to do anything like that. So, interesting. Uh, interesting. So being able to get to quantum computing is probably the only way that you're going to effectively do something like teleporting uh-huh. if, on a huge scale, if you're going to ever do it. Exactly, exactly. Well, since we brought it up, that's a nice way to segue to our next pop quiz for Chapter 7, and that is about teleportation and replicants. So this is a multiple-choice question, Dr. Bloom, so here we go. And uh, and it's a lost-in-space question, so we're on a, a little bit firmer ground, I think, here. So Oh, okay. Here we go. In the original Lost in Space episode, The Sky is Falling, an alien family of Taurons visit Preplanus via a matter transference machine which Professor Robinson says uses a blank device. Is that device A, a meson converter, B, a positronic transport, C, a maser beam, or D, a sonic transducer? Well, I'm not going to choose this just because it's C, (laughs) but I really think he said maser in the show. Right, a maser. And uh, a maser is just what? It's a... Well, a maser is just a laser, except at microwave energies, lower energies like radio wave energies, rather than light that you can actually see with your eyes. Yeah. Well, I would have been disappointed if you hadn't gotten this one, because you actually talk about this in the chapter. You mentioned maser beam, and you said that uh, there was something about it that sort of made sense. The way it was depicted in that episode, they were actually coming in on a beam of light, I guess. Yes. Yeah. So one of the ways that you could think about potentially teleporting people is to actually turn them into energy. Mm. Now, as we discussed before, that requires energy in itself because you you don't just spontaneously turn into energy unless you are made of matter and antimatter. In order to do that for normal matter, you have to somehow get it to a very high temperature or whatever. Uh, That in itself is problematic. But if you could do that, you could somehow get all the mass to turn into energy, then you could transport it, that energy at the speed of light to some other location. Mm. So doing it by a light beam is actually maybe the way you could do it. Now, how you actually get that person to turn into light <laughs> might, be, uh, might be a real problem. <laughs> sure. but, but at least if you could get over that little hiccup, then you could transfer them by a beam potentially. Yeah. Well, it looks cool if nothing else, although I think you even mentioned this, you know, microwave is not visible light, so it's not... Ex- <laughs> yeah, that was a little bit of a problem. Why he didn't just sort of say lay... I, he, they probably didn't want to confuse laser with, like, the thing that you would actually shoot someone with. Right. They, were actually, they were actually using laser technology for something else, so they wanted to say maser, or... I, I don't know. I've, yeah, who knows? Or they didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's Just great. Misery, yeah. All right. Well, here's your extra credit question, okay? So can you name the other episode of Lost in Space that featured that same Tauron Matter Transporter? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's the one where Will goes back to Earth. Yes. I forget the title. Is it something like Visit to Earth? Or it's Return Re- from Outer Space. Or uh, Return from Outer Space. I absolutely love that episode. So I would give you that anyway because you remembered what the episode was about. So yeah, uh, yeah. No, that yeah, was that sorry. was that's one of my favorite. Uh, actually, one of my favorite episodes for a number of reasons. I mean, it's just such a one-off episode, but uh, very cool. Well, in the chapter, you you mentioned there are two basic sort of concepts of teleportation. What would that be? 
Well, one of them would be to, like as we just discussed, kind of break someone down and turn them into energy and then transfer all that energy by a beam, and that would be how you teleport them. <laughs> right. That is somehow you're actually breaking down the substance that somebody's actually made out of and somehow getting that to another location. Mm. Now, another way of potentially doing it, though, and probably a little bit more promise with this, but, we'll, <laughs> but not much more, because <laughs> it's very far in the future, is actually sort of doing it with information that is keeping track of every single state that every single atom in the body is in, then transferring that information to another location, and then kind of reassembling you from matter on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. So in a way, that seems more possible. Uh, but the problem with that is then what about the original person? Sure. Uh, because in order to get all that information about you, you have to scan the person that you're going to beam. So what do you do? Destroy that person and recreate them on the other side? Well, you have to kill them, kill them now and then <laughs> revive them on the other side somehow by, with the information that you've transferred? Yeah, that seems kind of problematic. Uh, now, Star Trek is a little bit inconsistent with this. But probably the way that you would do what Star Trek is trying to do is, is have some sort of combination of both, where you transfer the matter that the person is made out of and use some information that you got out of their states of the individual atoms to kind of reassemble them from the matter that they were actually made out of on the other side, instead of trying to reassemble them from matter in some other location. Right, yeah. Now, sometimes they beam people into space, so how can you do that if there's no matter on the other side? Right, uh, right. The only way you can do that is if you actually use the matter that the person was actually made out of in the original location. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what they're trying to do, is maybe combine both of those ideas. Correct, yeah. And not just one or the other. Yeah, because if you think about it, if you were using the pure, you know, transmitting pattern method that you talked about, there would really be no reason to destroy the original person or object, right? Because you're just transmitting the scan of that person. So you're basically got a replicating machine. And is that person really the same person? And in any event, is that person going to have the same memory? I, I, yeah, that's that, that I find to be kind of problematic. Because then you have to believe that your sort of infinite knowledge of every single state of every single atom or whatever is going to somehow represent the person's uh, soul, if you will, or, <laughs> yeah. or you know, like their essence, their, 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 like right. their personality, right. uh, that somehow the combination of all those things is going to be that. I think it, if you really believe in physics, then yeah, everything boils down to physics, I guess, at some level. But, yeah, but you would you'd have to be really really precise. Otherwise, I think you're just going to have someone who looks like the original person, but probably some things are going to be off. Mm -hmm. Especially in terms of those details like personality. Right. Well, I found this chapter fascinating. Of course, it gets into a lot of things: quantum teleportation, entanglement, and replicating. You talked about hey, we're kind of there with in a way uh, with advanced 3D printing. Of course, the replicating they do in Star Trek is, again, it's sort of like a spin on the entire transporter idea. They're just basically yeah. cre creating matter out of what seems like nothing, including food and things like that. So, um, eh, yeah, you, you kind of go with it sometimes and just, you, you, know, <laughs> you know, just don't ask too many questions. But it's at least, again, something that I thought, kind of like the multi-universe thing, I thought it was interesting that, you know, reputable scientists actually talked about this and tried to come up with theories for how it could possibly work. So it's it's very interesting. I, I enjoyed that chapter a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah, there are a number of uh, so-called futurists like Michio Kaku, who's a, a physicist who's thought about a lot of these things, and, and Lawrence Krauss, another physicist who's thought about these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Well, let's move right along. Let's uh, let's talk about Chapter 8, which is weaponry, and I guess you could almost say futuristic weaponry, the kind of things that we see in science fiction. So for your pop quiz on this one, Doctor, I'm going to call this uh, – it's not a multiple choice. It's sort of a fill-in-the-blank. Instead of name that tune, I'm going to call it uh, name that clip, because I'm going to play a clip for you from a classic 1953 science fiction feature film that starred Gene Barry, Anne Robinson, and Les Tremaine. And I'm going to play the clip. You get to listen to it. And then after that, I'm going to ask you if you can identify the movie that this clip came from. Okay. Here we go. That skeleton bee must be what they use to wipe out the French city. It neutralizes Maison somehow. Barely atomic glue holding matter together. Cut across their lines of magnetic force and any object will simply cease to exist. Take my word for it, General. This type of defense is useless against that kind of power. You'd better let Washington know. Pass! Hold him as long as you can! Right, sir! Could you hear that at all? I could hear some of it, yeah. Okay, so basically, there's two people, and one of them says, that skeleton beam must be what they use to wipe out the French cities. And then the other guy says, it must neutralize Maison somehow. They're the atomic glue that holds matter together. Cut across uh-huh. their lines of magnetic force, and any object will simply cease to exist. So, Dr. Bloom, can you name the movie that clip came from? I can try. Go ahead. <laughs> I think it's War of the Worlds. <laughs> Yes, you got it. You got it. Wow. <laughs> and uh, to tell you the truth, it was just the noise of that thing. It's so... <laughs> so iconic, isn't it? The... So iconic, yeah. 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 I didn't remember the dialogue at all. Right. I couldn't remember who was in it. <laughs> Although I know Les Tremaine is another one of those guys who's in everything. Absolutely. But, <laughs> so, but I was like, oh, maybe I could remember who was in it. Uh, but I didn't. Yeah. And I didn't cheat. I didn't look on Google or anything. But the noise was just that triggered my memory. Uh, it's great. The sound effects. Actually, that film is is really cool for something that was done in 1953. I want to ask you, though, when he says it must neutralize Maison somehow, blah, 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 does that make any sense to you at all? With Is that what it actually would happen? Would an object simply... Not really. I mean, a Maison <laughs> is a type of particle, so it could have yeah. something to do with Maisons, but that being neutralized, I don't know. That doesn't really make that much sense necessarily. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, I guess what they're kind of getting at is you're just basically breaking all the bonds in the atom all at once in one phase. Oh, yeah, and they could have just said that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're breaking all the atoms apart. But Maison yeah. sounded cool. So. It did sound cool. So it's a scary scene, too. You know, because that uh, Martian war machine, first of all, it's a really cool, that manta ray design. And they've got the heat right. ray, which is roasting people alive. And then they've got that, uh, they, he calls it a skeleton beam. I, I actually never picked up on that until I listened to that clip very closely. And I uh-huh. think why they call it a skeleton beam is because in the movie for the special effect, when they show that beam hitting someone, it pauses for a second with like an outline of the person. And then yeah, it's like I a, remember that. Yeah, it's like an X-ray. Yeah. So they call yeah. it a skeleton beam. 
which is kind of yeah, cool too. That was kind of well, it would be scary now, but when I was a kid and first saw it, it was scary to me to see those skeletons. You know? Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. So, good job, good job getting that one. Here's your extra credit question. This one might be tough. I don't know, but can you name the famous movie producer behind this particular film and several other classic sci-fi films from the era? Uh, that would be George Powell. Wow. Excellent. Good. Yep. You're a hard man to beat. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> all right. Futuristic weaponry. I mean, we're all familiar with the tropes, you know, phasers, lasers, photon torpedoes, and all those sorts of things. You kind of go through the litany there. What's the big takeaway from this chapter? Well, one of the things is that one simple way of getting a lot of destructive power is to maybe just to sort of change the path of an asteroid and have that hit your enemy because something very, very massive and going very, very fast can do a lot of damage. So one type of weapon is just sort of a ballistic weapon where you're just throwing something at a high speed with high mass and just mm -hmm. destroying something. So that's one class of weapon. That's why things like meteors are so destructive when you have a big one. But getting into another class of weapons, you would have something like light-based weapons, like lasers or what Star Trek calls phasers, where you're either you have a lot of light that is concentrated high-intensity light focused on something and destroying it that way, like with a high-intensity laser, or you're just uh, using um, something like an X-ray where there's a mm. high amount of energy per sort of particle of light per photon, and you're destroying things that way. Sure. So you're either using high-energy light or high-intensity light, I guess, the way physicists would right. describe it. Right. Well, it's kind of interesting because I, I actually know from personal experience, uh, we do have, you know, high energy lasers, not anything close to what the Enterprise has on Star Trek, but they do have lasers that they've been developing to use for missile defense or anti-aircraft type weapons and things like that. But yes. again, generating the energy, you know, and keeping the beam focused is also another challenge, I think, with a lot of those those weapons when you're talking about hitting something from a great distance. Yeah. yeah, so you could probably use it for something like defending the Earth from whatever, Martians or something. Right. Uh, so, so you could scale that up from what we have now. I think the most powerful lasers are terawatt lasers, which is trillions of times of a watt. Uh, so those are very powerful. But you could maybe imagine scaling that up by a factor of a thousand or even more mm -hmm. and having something that could potentially defend the Earth. But you know something like what the enterprise is using is probably maybe even more energy than that. If you want to show what they show in the show, like destroying major section of a planet or something, might take even more than that. So don't even talk about the Death Star, right? Yeah, don't even talk about the Death Star. So for a planet destructor, that's uh, really starting to get into that realm again, where you have to really think about the amount of energy you have available to you to really actually be able to take apart a planet. Mm -hmm. Yep, it's it's the conundrum. I guess I'm kind of grateful that's really hard to do, right? <laughs> Yeah. Destroy planets. Then we don't have to worry about too many alien civilizations coming and destroying our planet. Correct. Uh, maybe a really advanced one could do it, but, you know. <laughs> yeah. mm -hmm. That's actually one of the things I always liked about that story, The War of the Worlds, that we were just talking about. You know, despite all their advanced technology, the Martians were actually defeated by the, you know, the the pathogens in our atmosphere. I don't know why they didn't think of that, though. They were running around naked uh, 
<laughs> yeah. And that, now, at the time, I thought that was a stupid out, but now after coronavirus and everything, sure. like, whoa, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe we have to worry about things like that. Yeah. Uh, so maybe aliens have to worry about that when they're, when they're coming to Earth. So. You never know. I hope you're enjoying this second of two special interviews with author and astronomy professor Steve Bloom as much as I am. Steve's book on the science of science fiction is both educational and very entertaining. But what shines through most is his passion for the sci-fi genre that inspired him to pursue a career in physics and astronomy. He's got more to share about his book and much more. So sit tight for the second half of our interview with author, professor, and Lost in Space fan, Dr. Stephen D. Bloom. Well, speaking of aliens, let's move on to Chapter 9, which is all about extraterrestrial life. So your pop quiz for this one is another Lost in Space question, and it's a multiple choice one. So are you ready? Oh, boy. Yep. All right, here we go. This creepy race of sinister aliens travels in threes and appeared on screen twice in Lost in Space. What was the name of those malevolent malefactors? Was it A, the Archons, B, the Metrons, C, the Satacons, or D, the Andronicans? Oh, I almost wish you didn't make it C because I kind of knew it was the Satacons. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it's a Satacon. I believe See, you. I was trying. To... <laughs> I don't know why I stuck with that? But uh, what do you think about those guys? Did you uh, did you think they were silly? Because Kurt and I've had this discussion before. He just thinks they're ridiculous with their bowler hats and their uh, you know their faces look like they are yeah, pieces of, of coal. Of all the aliens that you're going to have show up on the show more than once, you pick them. <laughs> I mean, they seem kind of goofy. Yeah. They do seem kind of goofy. I think their saving grace is that weird way they kind of sway, and the and their yeah. voice, and their voice sounds pretty creepy. And like a lot of Lost in Space episodes, they really ramped up the creepy music whenever those guys. I remember. Well, actually, let's talk about this here. I'll give you the extra credit question. Okay. Can you name either of the two episodes that the Satacons appeared in? Oh boy, uh, one is Wreck of the Robot. Yes. And the other one is The Galaxy Gift. Oh, wow. Absolutely. That's amazing. I can't believe I actually knew those. Yes. Yep. It just came to me in a flash. <laughs> well, I think about that Wreck of the Robot. There's a really good scene in that one where the Satacons actually sneak on board the Jupiter 2 at night when everyone's asleep, and they're trying to get the robot. Right. And they're playing this wonderful Bernard Herman music from The Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah. And it's pretty scary. They are silly in a lot of ways, but that particular scene, I remember as a kid, really did. I think it might have even given me a nightmare that, <laughs> I don't want to go to bed, <laughs> you know, that type of yeah. thing. So pretty interesting. So I think there are a number of episodes where they have aliens kind of creeping around at night looking at the... It's And it seems creepy, and it is creepy. It is. That they're kind of going into people's bedrooms. And things. The Satacons. Wow. Okay. Well, I had to get that one in there, so I thought that would be fun. Okay. Extraterrestrial life. Uh, talk about that a little bit. What are the odds that there is extraterrestrial life out there? What does the science tell us? Well, there are a lot of ways of interpreting that. Ah. Uh, I would say that the odds are small in a way, 
But because there are so many planets, now we know that almost every star has at least one planet around. Uh, you know, we look at so many stars now, we're discovering thousands of planets. Just 25 years ago, we only knew of a few planets around other stars. And over 30 years ago, we knew about zero planets around other stars. It's interesting, yeah. So the planets exist. So we now know that there are definitely planets around other stars. And we're now starting to see that some seem like they're possibly similar to Earth. At least they're similar size, similar density. We're not quite sure about the atmospheres yet. We're only starting to learn about the atmospheres. Mm. So in that sense, we have an idea that there are definitely what we would think of as habitable planets out there. So if that's true, then it all boils down to, does every habitable planet actually have a life form that survived there? Mm. Uh, and some biologists think that anywhere where it could happen, it probably would have happened. Uh, I don't know if I agree with that, but I, huh. I'm not a biologist. Sure. Um, I would say there's some finite probability so that if you have many, many, many planets you're probably going to get life somewhere in the galaxy. Mm -hmm. Now, the odds of it being intelligent life are stacked against you even more if you're talking about intelligent life, because more has to happen with evolution in order to get that intelligent creature out in the end. So I would bet that intelligent life exists somewhere in the universe. I wouldn't necessarily say in our galaxy, quite possibly, but not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting, you even set the table by saying, you know, what is life? We had to talk about that a little bit, <laughs> much less, as you say, intelligent life. And I thought it was interesting, too, that when you were saying that scientists and there are organizations and whatnot that are looking for that, but one of the things, one of the markers I think they've looked at for these planets, you say, that could be conducive to life is the existence of water. Water seems to be a fundamental factor that people are looking for. Why is that? Well, it's what we know of as being um, the only way that life can exist. L life on Earth needs water, too. Right. Both form originally, as far as we know, in terms of our theories, and also persist. Sure. Now, some plant life and even some animal life doesn't require as much water as others, but for the most part, for species to survive long-term, you need water. Mm-hmm. Now... Does that mean that every species in an entire galaxy would need water? Uh, maybe not. But we're going with that at first because that's what we know. So you start with what you know and then maybe hypothesize beyond that some weirder kind of life that might not need water. But if, if you're going to go with um, your highest chances of finding something, you kind of go with what you know and look for that first. And then if you don't succeed with that, Maybe go on to weirder stuff. Right, right. Well, yeah, and the other thing that's kind of interesting that you bring up, we talk about organic chemistry, the chemistry of life and molecules related to biological organisms and whatnot. Carbon's sort of the basis of all that, but you briefly discussed the possibility of other life forms being based on another atom as a silicon, I think you were talked about yeah. at some point, which seemed mm, a little bit less probable, I think. Yes, that's true, because the bonds aren't as stable, so in order to get this, it's harder to get the same sort of chemistry with stable bonds mm -hmm. that you would get with um, carbon-based life forms. One of the reasons, well, the reason why we have carbon-based life on Earth, carbon bonds are relatively easy to make and make into complex molecules and for them to survive under a wide range of conditions where silicon molecules can break down more easily. Right. So, Although, I was going to say that doesn't necessarily mean that it can't happen, sure. 
but it decreases the probability that it could happen. Right. Although the idea of a rock creature is kind of cool, if you think, <laughs> if, if, yeah. if you think about it. And some science fiction shows actually pursued that. You know, famously, I think, uh, I don't know if you'd really call it a rock creature, but Star Trek had the uh, the Horta, you know, and Devil in the Dark, and there was another rock creature. I can't remember. Uh, it might have been the Savage Curtain, but... Um, it was the Savage Curtain. Yeah, so it's an interesting idea, because particularly on Lost in Space, uh, all the aliens... <laughs> Yeah, well, they did have monster plants, to be fair, but I mean, all the intelligent aliens they meet basically look just about like human beings. In fact, they look exactly like human beings and speak English and everything else. So I always enjoy it when they step outside the box and give us something a little bit different. A rock creature certainly fits that bill. Well, one of the things I originally liked about Lost in Space is that they introduced that creature in the derelict fairly early that was some kind of not a rock creature, but some sort of non-humanoid thing right. that seemed intelligent. And then later on in another episode, I guess it's the Prisoner of Space, they show one of those creatures, and he is intelligent. Exactly. He's the judge that's kind of presiding over their trial. So, in that episode, so there's some sort of non-humanoid intelligent creature, but I think that might be the only one that he introduced in Lost in Space. And that's good. I mean, we do have to give him credit for that. That's another great episode, too, for a lot of reasons. I love that derelict ship, and those aliens were certainly out of this world. That was, yeah, you have to give him a lot of credit for that. That's true. So, And I think they may have been, I don't know about the first, but one of the first to show intelligent non-humanoid aliens, like a non-humanoid that wasn't a monster. It was a thinking creature. Exactly, yeah. And it was also kind of getting to that Star Trek idea of, you know, just because something might look repulsive or hideous to us, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's automatically a monster intent on killing you unless you try to kill it, I suppose. Hmm. So E.T. might be out there. It would be certainly interesting to find one. It may be a case where, you know, we might get to communicate with an intelligent life form, but, you know, just due to the limitations of space travel that we talked about, you know, it might be the only way we get to have a not-so-close encounter with another intelligent life form somewhere out in the universe. But yeah. then again, the question is, how do you even communicate with an alien life form? That's also a conundrum. Well, it's really tough because, um, as you say, one of the problems could just be the distance. Even if they understood you, just sort of saying, hi, and then 100 years later, have someone come back and say, hey there. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's kind of a difficult conversation to have. Like, even if you're essentially just going to repeat what the other person said and try to get something started, it's going to take a long time to really. It's right. not going to be a very high-yield interaction. Right. So I think realizing that, that's why astronomers, when they were first thinking about this, they sort of beamed these very dense sort of messages into space that showed you know, maps of the whole Earth and all the, just all the information they could get into a beam that they could kind of send to some other uh, section of the galaxy. They, they kind of packed all that information at once. Right. Uh, so on one hand, you don't want to get too overwhelming, but the other hand, if you're too simplistic and your conversations take a long time, they might never be able to figure out anything about you, mm -hmm. and you may not be able to figure out anything about them. Then there's the whole language thing, <laughs> which you know, most of the time they get over in sci-fi with universal translators and we're just kind of forgetting about it altogether. But that's going to be a real problem. I like how they kind of dealt with that in Star Trek. Um, I think it was the next generation that had an episode with this species was talkable in metaphors and they 
they tried to kind of figure out what that species was even trying to talk about. Oh, yeah. And eventually, by the end of the episode, they kind of got it. But it was good that they kind of played, even if it's not really realistic in how they solved the problem or, or, or whether anyone could really communicate that way, it presented some of the problems you would have with alien species. You wouldn't really understand them, so how do you get to the point where you do understand them? Exactly. If they even talk. I mean, right. maybe they only make those buzzy sounds like those creatures in the derelict. How do you translate that? Right. So, yeah. I mean, it's at least fun when they play with those ideas if they don't totally get all the details right, because that becomes a big part of the whole episode where most of the time, if it's a TV series, they're trying to get to a, a dramatic plot, you know, that's right. uh, where the science is sort of incidental, as it were. Hmm. Well, I enjoyed that chapter a lot, but I think we should probably move on to chapter 10, which is the last chapter, sadly, in the uh, in the oh. book. And for chapter 10, it's all about superhuman powers, superhuman powers. So I guess we'll call this the final exam, Dr. Bloom. So it's another, oh, okay. it's another multiple choice question. And uh, it's not necessarily C this time. You'll... <laughs> You'll have to uh, trust me on that. But it could be. Who knows? So here we go. This shape-shifting alien became a regular character in the second season of a 1970s British-made sci-fi TV series, which starred Martin Landau and Barbara Bain. Is the character's name in the series A, Devon from The Star Lost, B, Maya from Space 1999, C, Rem from Logan's Run, or D, Bork from Jason of Star Command? It is B, Maya. Ah, yes. <laughs> from Space 1999. You had to know that one, but I probably shouldn't have told you Martin Landau and Barbara Bain, but uh, I think you would have gotten it anyway. As it yeah, was. probably. Yeah. I thought that that was an interesting character. I don't know if you are a big fan of Space 1999 or not. I kind of like it. It's quirky. It's different. But uh, there's a big controversy among that show's fan base, which is better, season one or season two. Do you have a thought? Uh, yeah, I have a thought, because I do like this series in general. I know there's some problems with it in terms of justifying kind of having the moon go out of sure. Earth's orbit. But if, if you don't get too hung up on actual physics... Then um, I would say that probably the first season was better in that it had uh, was discussing kind of philosophical issues. Mm -hmm. Now, some people don't like that because they had kind of a scientist kind of discussing philosophical issues. So wh why is he even doing that? Why isn't he considering more sciencey type stuff? So yeah. I kind of get that criticism, but in terms of just plotting and themes and writing and acting. At guest spots and things like that, I would say probably the first season is better. Yeah, and I would also say that I agree with everything you mentioned, but I would also say the tone of the first season is more interesting. Uh, famously, you know, this was another Jerry Anderson production. That is really a great series. And, you know, you can watch every episode, even in the second season, and get something out of it. But the tone of the first season I enjoyed because uh, put aside all the science problems with it, but it really had this space is dangerous. It's weird. It's wild. You never know right. what's going to happen next. Yeah. Um, almost a Gothic feel, even though it's, there's nothing really, you know, from a, uh, <laughs> you know, the art design or anything that's, that's Gothic. Uh, but it just had this tone that was really compelling. I mean, I was a kid when that series came on and I was so, 
excited to see it because I'd already yeah. become a fan of, you know, Lost in Space. And then I'd kind of a little bit outgrown that and was really big fan of the original Star Trek show. And I thought, well, this is going to be another, you know, just like Star Trek or whatever. And it was totally different. And I was at first a little disappointed, but as I got yeah. into it, I really enjoyed it. Now that <laughs> then they went to season two. And they actually brought in a guy who'd been the producer on the last season of Star Trek, and they basically turned it into something more like a you know action adventure type ship. Right. And right. They replaced the scientist whose name escapes me, but it was played by Barry Morse with the Bergman. Yeah. Yeah, Victor Doctor Bergman. Bergman. Yeah, Victor Bergman. Thank you. With this Maya character, did you like her though? I mean, was that an interesting character? Did you think? Yeah, I think she was a very likable character. I mean, it was a very sympathetic character because uh-huh. she was kind of this lost soul. Her race had died off, and she, you know, you felt sorry for her. But she was very smart too. And in addition to her kind of shape shifting abilities, she was just agile person, and, and of course, she's a beautiful woman, Catherine Shell. Oh, yes. So, uh, <laughs> what's not to like, right? <laughs> Yeah, so what's not to like? Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, they wrote her as likables. <laughs> yes, yeah. She was fun. Here's your extra credit question. One last quiz for Professor Bloom. Uh, speaking of Maya, can you name the planet that Maya was from? Maya was from Psycon. Yes. Oh, man. Awesome. That's good. If I hadn't looked that up, I probably would have had trouble remembering that. So there, good on you. You did well. So I think you aced the test here. All right. Superhuman powers, though. To me, the way superhuman powers are presented in science fiction, even with Maya and Space 1989, there's rarely any scientific explanation for why Maya can shapeshift the way she does, never mind, you know— change sizes, like she can become a frog or a mouse or something like that. You know, it almost veers into the realm of fantasy for me. What's your thoughts on this whole concept of uh, superhuman powers? Yeah, some of it definitely seems like it's only tangentially related to science, Mm -hmm. although you could imagine some of it happening. Like things like uh, telepathy, I can't imagine it happening with an organic brain. Like that is some sort of being just having this ability to read thoughts. But you can imagine that somehow maybe you could have this super powerful brain scanner that could be like um, some sort of scanning machine that you'd have in medicine that could actually get the details of someone's brain, but make that a super fine resolution sort of MRI type scanner and get even better resolution than that kind of thing and somehow interpret what the person is thinking. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I could see it being done with some sort of very advanced technology with the types of devices like EEGs and MRIs. But I can't see it being done with like a humanoid brain. Right. Uh, With something like shape-shifting, that's even worse. (laughs) Because uh, where do you put that mass? If someone's going to go from a human to a mouse, there's a huge difference in mass. So either they're getting rid of mass somehow, and that can only be done if you're transferring it into energy which we've already talked about, would be a tremendous amount of energy, or you're kind of compacting them into this super dense mouse. But the problem with that is if you're trying to turn into a mouse to kind of evade some other person or something, well, if you're much denser than a normal mouse, if the person picks you up or something, they'll be able to tell that you're not a normal mouse. So yeah. Um, yeah, that's so that, <laughs> that has its problems too. <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's interesting. I hadn't thought of it until I read that in your, in your book, but that's right. Where where does that mask go? And if it's not there, if it doesn't go anywhere, yeah. you've got a 200-pound mouse sitting there. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're fun to think about, you know, but uh, 
Yeah, the, the only thing that I could think of that might have a fairly normal explanation, maybe you can have some super strong being like Superman or whoever, where if they're in a kind of high-gravity environment and then they shift to a low-gravity environment, they uh, might exhibit more strength because they're now freed up to kind of move around more easily. So you can imagine that might be an explanation why in one environment they might appear to have super strength. But then you have to ask the question, why would they have evolved like humans and look like humans if <laughs> if they are under super strong gravity? Uh, they would probably look different, but that, you know, we don't have to think about that too much. But <laughs> Right. Well, Wow. I think we've given the listeners a really nice sample of what's in all 10 chapters of your fabulous book, Doctor, but hopefully we've left them wanting more because I really enjoyed this book and I, I do encourage everyone to give it a look. But I should ask you, Steve, this, because your book came out in 2016. Have there been any developments in science that make you think uh, it's time for a second edition or are you one and done? Well, I've thought of maybe doing a second book that could have some crossover, and I've already actually started writing on it a little bit. It's uh, less actually about explaining the physics of science fiction, but getting into some common themes of science fiction, writers and actors and directors who kind of deal with common themes in their work, and ah. kind of playing around with that idea. So uh, I hope you do it, because that sounds interesting. I'd enjoy reading that. It's, it's actually, uh, if you think of a 100,000-word thing as being a full book, I'm sort of a third done with it, because <laughs> ah, okay. I've committed some things to paper. Uh, so uh, we'll see where that goes, but that might actually turn into a book. And then the second, a few people have mentioned to me the kind of a second edition idea, and I hadn't originally thought about it, but if there's popular demand, I'm, I might just do it. Hey, you got a guaranteed sale here. I can promise you that. Uh, <laughs> There's always more science fiction to talk about. Absolutely. And we only really scratched the surface of this book. Speaking of which, I ordered my book on Amazon. Is that the best place to get it? Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, that type of thing? Yeah, I think Amazon is probably best because they have the different version. They have the electronic and the paperback. Uh, there uh -huh. is no hardcover. Uh, Barnes & Noble, the last I checked, it only had the electronic edition for Nook. So, okay. Which, and the Nook thing's less popular than the... Than the Kindle? Uh, than the Kindle, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, if you have a Nook, then go to Barnes & Noble. Got it. But the main way would probably either be through Amazon or going direct to the publisher, McFarland Publishing. I gotcha. Okay. Well, we will certainly link to McFarland and your... Amazon page and the show notes for this episode. And I've been real greedy with your time. But before we go, I want to mention also your fabulous blog that you do, uh, oh. because I, I didn't notice that. <laughs> the first time I stumbled across your signature block in the email you sent me and learned that you had the book, um, I skipped right over the blog. But kind of doing research for this interview, I went back and saw that. That's great. And thank you. You actually gave us a little shout out for the podcast on your blog. Tell us about that, because I think you've been doing that about going back to when you did the book. Yeah, right after I came out with the book, I decided to do it partially as kind of advertising the book uh -huh. because I kind of mentioned the book at the end of almost all the posts. I kind of say, if you like more of this, go read it. But uh, more recently, I've kind of just gone in any direction. Sometimes it's critiquing new science fiction. Uh, sometimes it's talking about physics or astronomy that appears in either new or old science fiction. Hmm. Or, so it kind of goes in different directions. Interesting. I think the post that I read where you mentioned our podcast was actually on the new 
Netflix Lost in Space. And what was fun about that is that series, they just finished their third season, and I guess it's all done now. But they like to put a lot of Easter eggs, throwbacks to the original, and you point out some of them. I won't spoil the the Easter eggs that you uncovered in that one. But I, I was wondering, how did you find that Netflix original Lost in Space? I found it enjoyable, but I almost wish they hadn't called it Lost in Space. Because I think I would have just enjoyed it as kind of a family going into space that didn't have to be the Robinsons. <laughs> right. But but I think by calling it Lost in Space and by calling them the Robinsons, it automatically invites comparison. Sure. And you're thinking, oh, this isn't as good. Or, but, <laughs> you know, when you think about it, when you get down to episode to episode, a lot of episodes of Lost in Space, the original weren't that good. I mean, we're judging it mostly on the best episodes we saw and thinking, oh, that was wonderful. <laughs> And then kind of just trudging through the things we didn't like as much. Right. Well, and, uh, and, and you can't discount the nostalgia factor because this is a show yeah. we watched when we were kids. And you're always going to yeah. have a soft spot in your heart for something that you grew up on, I think. I think you're right. I think you're right. And then you become reluctant to say good things about whatever might be changing that. Mm-hmm. But I think as an independent sort of series, I think it's very good. I think some things that really flip the script, like having a female Dr. Smith, were really good. I thought Parker Posey was very good. Mm-hmm. Now, that kind of will upset people <laughs> to think of Harris as the only Smith there could ever be and thought he did an awesome job. And I, I, he did do an awesome job. Sure. But, but that doesn't mean that you can't have other people doing great work. Right. But that's kind of why I think maybe they shouldn't have called it Lost Space. Because <laughs> I think people would have recognized the great work that some of those actors and actresses did if they had called it something else, but but I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it too. My wife and I watched all of it, and uh, I'm kind of sad that it's over. But, you know, they're going out on a high note, in my opinion. But I think you're right. It would have been probably better if it hadn't been called Lost in Space. They, they could have done all the same episodes, changed the characters' names, and it would have been able to stand on its own two feet. But I think, you know, Kevin Burns, who is like the keeper of the flame of all the yeah. Erwin Allen properties, really has tried hard to get Lost in Space in particular back on TV. So that Yes, was, and I heard those interviews with him. You know. Yeah, so that was going to happen. But inviting comparisons between the original and the new one is fraught with peril, even though on so many levels, I think a neutral critic would say that the Netflix show is superior to the original series. But the problem is, I still don't think it's ever going to have the same lasting impact on so many people that the original Lost in Space had. You know, you just can't, uh, it's hard to create that. Now, one sci-fi reboot series I genuinely prefer to the original is a new Battlestar Galactica. I don't know if you ever saw the original or the redo. Um, I watched the redo and only saw a couple episodes of the old one. uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So it was not only a qualitative difference, I just thought the storytelling and everything else about the new Battlestar Galactica was superior. Not that I didn't like the original. I did. But... I just thought the new reboot exceeded all expectations, I guess. And I think Star Trek kind of avoided that by doing so many different aspects of the franchise that some of it's good, some of it's bad, and right. people don't really make that many anymore. <laughs> or maybe a little bit, like uh, the classics or Kirk versus Picard sort of thing. But yeah. mostly people just kind of accept those individual <laughs> theories for what they are. Absolutely. Yeah. Personally, I haven't dipped my toe into any of the latest versions of Star Trek that, uh, um, first of all, I don't have the network that they're on, but I I hear mixed things about them. I've been kind of holding off and I don't want to prejudge it based on the 
the male, but there seems to be a big cultural divide between those who really like those new series and those who have kind of like said, eh, it's not for me. So I'm, I, I'm agnostic because I just haven't uh, tried any of them. My favorite one is the new animated. Uh, well, the, uh, now I can see more than one animated one, but there's one called Lower Decks, which is hilarious. Is it? Okay. And that's my favorite one. Uh, Discovery, man. Picard, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, I know other people just absolutely love them. And I'll go back and watch them. I've seen some episodes, but okay. but I couldn't really sit through a couple of seasons of those shows. They just, in a way, they're too dark, and mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. Yeah. It wasn't for me the way they were presented, but... Yeah. There's some secret sauce in some of those original classic science fiction series that's just hard to recreate sometimes. But anyway, uh, that's a discussion for another time, which, speaking of that... I think I've been way too greedy with your time, as usual, but I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I can't thank you enough, Dr. Bloom, for being so generous with your time. But before we sign off, is there anything else you'd like to mention? Oh, um, just um, take some time to look at my blog, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because I'll be sort of putting new ideas there in the future. It's not an everyday sort of thing, but if you just go to it every so often... I think the probably the easiest way to remember it is one of the domain names I have for it is uh, I think it's stephendbloom.net. Ah, okay, stephendbloom.net. Okay, great. Well, that's a good note to end it on, I think. Uh, This has been so much fun. I just want to say thank you once again. This has been a long-term goal of mine to get someone exactly like you on the show, and now we've done it. So um, we will, of course, link to your blog. We'll link to all your fascinating websites, your Amazon page, the whole Megillah. But at this time, I'll just say one last time, thank you so much for coming on Alpha Control. It has been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, it's been great. Take care, sir. All right, bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was a blast talking with author and professor Dr. Stephen Bloom. If you haven't already read his book, I highly recommend you go out and buy a copy now. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved, original, Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.